let's take a moment and let's just ask the Lord to help us see from his word this morning. What is his plan for our home and for our hearts in particular? Pray with me. Father, thank you for opportunities like this, the conference coming up. Lord, we ask that you would just be... um, working in hearts ahead of time, and just even in, in the, the plans and safety to get to the conference. Father, for, for a topic such as this, it's so needed in our lives of, of what it looks like for godly families, for biblical families. And so, Father, we pray your blessing upon that at the conference ahead. But Lord, we need this here today. Father, we need this as a church, as your church And as a family of families, Lord, we need this. And so help us see from your word this morning uh, the things that you have for us. Father, uh, encourage our hearts where they need encouraged. Strengthen us. Uh, Father, uh, let us rejoice in those areas where we see you working and where we see you. uh, we're, We're aligned to your ways, your truth, Father. Help us to see those and not just be hard on ourselves. Father, you tell us that your yoke is easy. And so, Father, help us to walk in in the rest that we can have through Christ and how you empower us, Lord. Father, uh, thank you for this time. Might you bless it. In the name of Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen. So you have outlines with you this morning. What I want you to do is at the top where there's lots lots of space. I first want you to picture in your mind's eye what you think a godly family looks like? What is a Christian family? On your outline, jot down a few key words that you think of when I ask you these questions. What do you think a godly family looks like? What are the hallmarks of a Christian family? What are the core characteristics and habits of biblical mothers, fathers, husbands, wives, men, women, children? As you write that down, we'll come back to this before our time is finished this morning. Now, our hearts and minds can go a hundred different directions whenever we start to answer this sort of question. Is it the family that is at church every single time the doors are opened. Is that what it looks like to be the picture of the godly family, of a biblical family? Is that a good family? Or maybe it's the family that never fights or has any disagreements whatsoever. (laughs) I heard a chuckle. Absolutely. Any family who's never had a disagreement or fight has never tried to drive to church on a Sunday morning, right? Maybe it's this. Maybe the good Christian family is having that perfectly posed, glossy image that we can paste and post all over social media that really makes it look like we've got it figured out. We're together. We're all good. Our aim this morning is to set our sight on a target. And none of the images above is necessarily the target itself. Now, if we're hitting the target, we might express it in some of those ways, but it's not the target in and of itself. What then is the goal? 
Look with me in your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 4. We already read at the end of the book, uh, at the end of the chapter there is where we had our scripture reading. But here in Ephesians chapter 4, and we're going to look at verse 1 really quickly here, Paul is starting to answer the question, so what about all of this God's grace stuff? At the end of chapter 3, we have what is undeniably my absolute favorite prayer of the Apostle Paul. I mean, I get excited. My heart rate goes up a little bit. It's powerful when we read what Paul's prayer is and what he's praying for. And his prayer is so powerful that he breaks out into a song of sorts. We actually call it a doxology, a a word of praise that is given by the Apostle Paul at the end of that prayer in Ephesians chapter 3. Because he has drawn together that how God has worked out from the beginning, the foundation of the world, he had a plan for this thing called the body of Christ, where he will and uphold his grace in a special way apart from any nationality, like he had chosen the nation of Israel, that they would be set aside and that God was going to work with individuals. And these individuals would be trophies of his grace. And so he is taught on all of these things and that he offers salvation by grace through faith alone. Such wonderful glories. It brings him to his knees in praise and in prayer. And now, now that we know all of that, now that we know what God is doing why he's doing it, how what God is doing today fits into the timeline of the ages, what happened in the past, what's going on now, and what's going to be going on in time future. Now that we know all of that, what impact, what effect does it have? Paul starts to answer that question, the idea of, so what? Well, he says it has everything to do with what goes on in your heart and life. Look at chapter 4, verse 1. He says, I therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, beseech you to walk worthy of the calling with which you were called, with all lowliness and gentleness, with long suffering, bearing with one another in love, endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Paul begins with the individual. And immediately, he says, you as an individual, this this whole grace thing is supposed to be doing something in your life. And immediately, it's not just about the, the individual, he connects us to the body of Christ. And he says, walk in unity. And we all have a, a part in, this, in the bigger picture of what God is doing. But by and large, he is dealing with us as individuals with this. He begins with individuals immediately in the context of others. He shows us what a grace unleashed in the life of a child of God can do and the impact that it can have. So by the time we get to Ephesians 4, 29, and look there with me, this is kind of our our jumping point for the entire uh, time in God's word today. Ephesians 4, 29, let no corrupt word proceed out of your mouth but what is good for necessary edification in order that it may impart grace to the hearers. God does is to do such a work in your life that you are so saturated by his grace that his grace 
infuses and is communicated through everything that we do to others. We are merely vessels and channels of what God has given us in his grace, and we offer it forth to others around us. We are channels, we are vehicles of his grace to others. So now when we think of godly families, we immediately think of mom and dad and kids. That's kind of what we start to think about, right? When we think of a family, we think of uh, kids, families, parents, all of that. But Paul's starting in a different place. He, he's starting with individuals, as we see there. And before Paul talks about what we think of as a family, because families have kids, right? When does Paul talk about kids in the book of Ephesians does he, I, bet you, I bet you every kid in this church can probably quote where Paul talks about children. Children, and it's Ephesians chapter 6, verse 1. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, right? Yeah, many of our kids know that verse. So Paul does talk about kids, but he doesn't do it until very later on at the end. Do you know what Paul talks about before he talks about children? He talks to moms and dads. And before he talks to moms and dads, do you know who he talks to? He talks to husbands and wives. Look at chapter 5, verse 22. Wives, submit to your husbands. Later on, a few verses later, verse 28. So husbands ought to love their wives. Before we talk about the family as, as, as kids and merely the uh, kid-containing units, we have husbands and wives. And before we have husbands and wives, we have godly men, godly women, godly individuals. These are what we're talking about when we're talking about what is a godly family. It can look just an individual. And then if God blesses that individual in marriage, that godly family then becomes that godly husband, the godly wife. And as God blesses that husband and wife with children, now we add the role of parent to their responsibilities and how they bless their children through serving the God, serving God in the home uh, as being parents. <clears throat> and so what I want us to see, first and foremost, if you have your outlines, we'll see it here in point number one, is that grace-filled homes result from grace-filled individuals. All right, so uh, we often think of the larger scale family and all the people that make up a family. We think of the as the whole, but we're going to look at it as the individual parts at first. And grace-filled homes can only come from grace-filled individuals. Well, before we talk about the whole individual thing, and we'll get there in just a couple minutes. I really want to lock in on this idea of what do I mean by grace-filled homes? I'm not just saying grace homes. I'm saying grace-filled homes. The next point on your outline says this, grace-filled homes indicate families which are, number one, word-rooted. A grace-filled home is one in which the word of God is the firm foundation in all of life. All that is believed, all that is said, all that is taught, it is rooted in the very word of God. 
Gracefield homes are word-rooted. They are God-dependent. Word-rooted, God-dependent, and Christ-exalting. This is what I refer to when I say grace-filled homes. We don't stray from the Word of God. In fact, we don't stray from the Word of God, nor do we stray from the power of God, for we are dependent upon God's power all of its own. And as such, we point all things to the Lord Jesus Christ. He is the preeminent one. He is above all and in all, and he is the one that we exalt in this. Oftentimes, uh, you'll hear us as you spend time, and I I know a lot of people, uh, as I introduce them to the church or are about us, they say, well, you sure like this whole thing about grace, don't you? And Absolutely. We believe that is the hallmark, that is the message, that is the vehicle that God is working with mankind today. It's, it's his grace uh, apart from the law, apart from how he has done it in the past. And so it's very exciting, and we, we love to, uh, to share and proclaim God's grace. But oftentimes, as, as, as we refer to others who have uh, the same view and understanding of God's word, the same message of grace, we'll refer to them as other grace churches or grace organizations or, or, or uh, ministries like that. And notice uh, what we mean by that is often the approach that we take, it'd be a, a mid-acts dispensational approach where we recognize the grace of God given to the Apostle Paul and, and how that makes God's word come together and we understand it and we see what God is doing. That indeed is grace. But the problem is, is that in and of itself is not necessarily the picture that we just depicted uh, above in our definition of a grace-filled home. In many senses, I can claim, and I say this with all sensitivity and honesty with this, but I can personally claim that I am a third-generation grace believer. That means the ideas, the the truths, the understanding of God's word, which I love and I adore, and it has brought fruit and blessing in my life. That can be traced back to, in my family, going back to my great-grandparents. That is exciting. That is a blessing in and of itself. But I want to draw a distinction because all too, ha- all too often, and this is something that we're facing culturally in the world as uh, not just theologically with where, with where we're at, but just as more and more Christians walk away, not just from understanding the grace of God and how God's word fits together, but they're walking away from the Christian faith, period. More and more are turning on that. We have to talk just a little bit about this. That again, these ideas, these truths go back three generations in my family, but yet I don't like to say that I'm a third generation grace believer because grace was only known in my family tree by doctrinal statement. 
It was only known by theological persuasion, by, by words and definitions that were put on it. When it came to the, the reality of what God's grace does in our lives and how it changes us from death to life and how it transforms us. Remember the, the three pillars our church, uh, on our church on our logo, grace, truth, and freedom, all those things that grace does in our lives, that was not there. And in fact, my grandfather was a very angry, violent, scary man, and that had tremendous impact on his seven children. That man who knew grace and uh, was at church every Sunday, that idea of grace did not show up in home. He lived an adulterous life and ended up walking away from his family of seven children. That is not grace. That might be grace in a book, but it is not what God's grace does in our life. It is, that is not God's intention for that. And I want to share, and I say it in all humility, because I have seen the ravaging effects of God's grace not being unleashed, where uh, in one way we use the words grace, we say the words grace, but in life it lived another way, and almost every single one of his children are not walking with the Lord. Many of those children have gone off, uh, they, they were angry, bitter people themselves, drug addiction, death because of drug addictions. It's a legacy, not of grace. And none of us would say that's the legacy that we want. None of us want to have that as the target by which we're shooting. But we have to deal, we have to recognize that we're not just talking about something in a textbook. We're talking about something that is very real. It is the reality, it is the effect of understanding the grace of God. It is God's grace filling our lives. So I don't want just a doctrinal, theologically persuasive, grace-filled home where my kids can fill out a chart of how the Bible fits together. I want that because it's important to understand God's word. It's important for them. It will keep them free in the Lord Jesus Christ. But I want my home to be one that is rooted indeed in God's word and all of those things that we just said. But as we see how God works things out, we recognize my favorite definition of grace is God doing for mankind what mankind could never do for himself. God, through Jesus Christ, died on the cross on behalf of my sins, paying for my sins, setting me free, giving me life, giving me his righteousness. I could never do that on, on my own. He did that on my behalf. That is what grace is. The very definition of entering into a relationship with God through grace, by faith, is that I accept he did it all for me, and I receive it. He does it for me. There is that God dependency that we come to grace by faith and we stand in God's grace by faith through dependency upon God. And then for certain, it is Jesus Christ exalted because he is the picture of grace. Would you go to Colossians chapter one with me? 
Colossians chapter 1. There's so many passages that we can look at. But we see this marriage, this three-stranded cord that goes together. How important it is for us to see all of these. We can't just focus on one. We need all of them together because it brings balance. It brings it brings most glory to Christ when we see these things in balance. Look with me in Colossians chapter 1. Lots of passages we could look at here, but look at chapter 1, verse 24. Paul's going to align these three ideas. He says, I now rejoice in my sufferings for you and fill up in my flesh what is lacking in the afflictions of Christ for the sake of his body, which is the church, of which I became a minister according to the stewardship from God. That's the Bible word dispensation that's put in there. He said, God dispensed this grace and he gave it to the apostle Paul. It was for a reason, he says, which was given to me for you to fulfill the word of God. It's the thing that brought to completion the word of God. He says, namely this, he goes on to describe it another way in verse 26. The mystery which has been hidden from ages and generations, but now has been revealed to his saints through him. Verse 27, to them, God willed to make known what are the riches of the glory of this mystery. That's what we're talking about when, when, when we think of you know, how we understand God's word. We understand it from a grace perspective, what God is doing today, a, a mid-acts approach to scripture. We see that. He said, uh, but God willed to make known what are the riches of all of these things, the glory of this mystery among the Gentiles. And this is what the glory is. What does it say? Which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Him we preach, warning every man and teaching every man in all wisdom, in order that we might present every man perfect in Christ Jesus. Oftentimes, when we seek and we focus just on how God's word fits together, whatever the theological idea is, whatever the doctrinal persuasion is, we look at it and that's the thing we preach, that's the thing we exalt, that's what we put our focus on. And Paul, he says, no, this is, this is exactly what it is. God's doing this. In fact, I'm the agent of God to let everybody know what he's doing. But you know what my focus is? His focus was Jesus Christ. What was at the heart? What is the why? What is the so what of God working through the Apostle Paul? He said, it's Christ in you. Jesus Christ being formed, working in you. It's him we preach. It's not a what. It's not a, an idea it is a person that we preach. And so a grace-filled home is one that recognizes Jesus Christ is above all and in all. You could look over it at verse uh, 16 of chapter 1. For by him, that is Christ, all things were created that are in heaven and that are on earth, visible, he goes on, all things were created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things consist. Chapter 3 of Colossians, verse one, and, uh, 1 through 4. If then you were raised with Christ, seek those things above where 
Christ is seated. Everything is focused and pointing us back time and time again to Jesus Christ. And so when we're setting the target of what does it look like to be a godly family, number one, it looks like us to be, to be godly individuals. And godly individuals are grace-filled, meaning we're rooted alone in the word of God. We're dependent upon God. We didn't draw attention to that, but you look at verse 29 of chapter 1. Paul said, to this end, I also labor, striving according to his working, which works in me. Do you see that God dependence there? That threefold cord that I said we need to be, find balance, being grace-filled. Grace-filled homes indicate families that are word-rooted, God-dependent, and Christ-exalting. <clears throat> With that, we move on to the next idea <clears throat> that these grace-filled uh, individuals, these families have godly individuals leading them. A grace-filled family does not just happen on its own. We are led to these people, just as Paul so often says, God gave to me and he gave to others and brought them along in God's grace. It takes uh, a transmission of God working in one and using that one and blessing others through it. That's just what God's grace does. It has an impact and it works through us to others. For this, I want to share a principle with you. If you would, turn to the book of Luke with me and go to chapter 6, verse 40. It's a principle that's important for us to see. Luke chapter 6, verse 40. Here, Christ is in in his earthly ministry, and, and part of that ministry, he was rebuking. He was, he was getting the attention of the nation of Israel, and he always started at the top, right? He went for the leaders, and he went because he wanted their hearts. He wanted their faith and their trust in him. He wanted their wayward hearts to turn towards him, and he knew that to get the hearts of the nation, he needed to get the hearts of the nation's leaders, and so he, would, he focused on these leaders time and time again. And he tells a parable, and look at verse 39 of Luke chapter 6. Verse 39 says, And he spoke a parable to them. Can the blind lead the blind? Will they not both fall into the ditch? How's that working? If you're blind and you're trying to lead someone else to the end of a maze, how can a blind person take someone to the end of the maze? You can't. You're going to lead them astray because you don't have it yourself. There's an idea that is, is, has often been brought out of, you cannot give what you do not have. Again, I love each of you desperately. And I would love nothing more than to give you a million dollars. Particularly buying a house, I have not a million dollars. <laughs> Nor did I have a million dollars to buy a house, period. But I can't give it to you because I do not have it. The spiritual leaders of Israel at that time did, could not lead them because they did not have 
the spiritual eyes. They were not following after God and his ways. He phrases it in a different parable, in a different way in verse 40. Not just the blind leading the bind, but here in verse 40, he says, a disciple is not above his teacher, but everyone who is perfectly trained will be like his teacher. All right, this really brings out the idea of of the leadership, of the the religious leaders of the time. And he's saying the, the leaders here, and they're pouring into the student, all right? And that student, whenever the time is that they're perfectly trained, meaning that they've been equipped fully to functioning, all right? They've given everything that they need to that student, and that student can be up and running on their own, maximum capacity, all right? You know who that student's going to be like? Just like that teacher. Everything that was poured into them is the thing that's going to be in. Save for the dramatic grace of God apart from that. The fruit is going to be just like the root, right? Whatever vine that it's attached to, that fruit, if there's not nutrients going into the vine... Any fruit that's going to come off of that vine, it's not going to, have a, it's not going to be very good fruit. You, you can only give what you have in that. And so there's this principle in this idea. Ken Ham has a quote uh, in his book, Will They Stand?, talking about uh, each successive generation, particularly the generation of children now, who will be called to stand for the Lord and uh, taking the mantle from us. He says this, what you do at the top filters down and brings others up. That is godly leadership. That is Christ-centered. That is biblically rooted, God-dependent leadership in our lives. What you do at the top filters down. As we're talking about grace-filled families, they're made up of grace-filled individuals, which means that we have grace-filled moms. We have grace-filled dads, grace-filled men and women who are taking in God's grace letting God's grace work so they have it to give so that we can see the fruit in those that come after us. We could look at this uh, a little further in the book of Malachi chapter 2. For sake of time, we're not going to go look there, but Malachi chapter 2, verses 13 through 15 Again, in the context, it's kind of interesting. We have the life of Christ and his ministry, and he's, he's rattling the cages of the religious leaders of Israel. Wake up, leaders. You need this. You need me. But before Christ came, there were hundreds of years of silence, Right? Hundreds of years of silence. We call that the intertestament period. And at the close of our Old Testament, as we're looking at the book of Malachi, you see Malachi rattling the cages of the leaders. In fact, you look at chapter 2, and he's condemning, and he's saying, hey, priests, you've missed the boat. You're not walking in God's ways. And then he draws in the illustration and the pictures of husbands and wives, and not forsaking each other, and husbands and wives working. And he says, why? Why do we need this? Because God seeks a godly offspring. 
It's an important point that he puts out there. God wants godly children to come, and he's given the family as the vehicle, as a mechanism to see that happen. But it's got to be in mom and dad before we go there. Interestingly enough, you go to the end of the book of Malachi, chapter 4, you could look at there, and the last thing before silence of 400 years, last thing that's recorded there for us, is that it says that God will turn the hearts of the fathers towards, his ch- towards their children and the hearts of children towards their fathers. Beautiful passage of Scripture. But getting our attention that, A, the family is the vehicle, one of the greatest vehicles that God indeed wants to use to bless and impact and change the world. But indeed, it has to happen on a personal, individual level. With that, God places priority on leadership, and we call godly men to the table to stand up and be leaders for the Lord, to have God's grace do a work in our hearts so that we can give and have the fruit of godly offspring as God desires there. Well, this brings us and we'll phrase this idea in another way. Not only do grace-filled hearts, sorry, grace-filled homes result from grace-filled individuals, grace-filled individuals have transformed hearts. So we go from the big picture, the family is made up of individuals. And now when we zoom in on the individual, we see that individuals have experienced heart transformation because of what God has done in their lives. This is that idea that I was talking about, why I I emphasize the nuance of a grace-filled home as opposed to just a grace, an ideological home, a thing home. It's a hymn home. Next sub point is God's grace must reach the heart level. There's something that we probably missed when we were in Ephesians chapter 4, and I want us to capture it now. So uh, keep your hand in Luke, because we're going to come right back to the Gospels here in a moment. So that'll be uh, faster turning. But we'll look at Ephesians chapter 4, verse 29, or just listen to it uh, with me here. Ephesians 4.29 says, Let no corrupt word proceed out of your mouth, but what is good for necessary edification, that it may impart grace to the hearers. Remember that, that big goal, the picture, is that we have grace so that we can give grace to others. It's an, out, an external focus with God's grace in our lives. And before uh, you know, we have God's grace going out uh, and it's uh, the communication coming out of our mouths, Right? But did you know that words don't just come out of our mouths? Do you know where words come from? Where words really begin? That's where we need to go to the book of Matthew. So turn with me to the book of Matthew. We'll find this by principle in chapter 15. Matthew chapter 15. Taking the idea that God's grace must reach the heart level. We want to communicate, be saturated in God's grace that we give it. Everything to come out of our mouth, saturated in grace. Well, for grace to come out of my mouth, you know where it's got to be first? It's got to be here. We we say expressively our heart at the soul level, at the level of faith, 
trust and belief in what God has said. Matthew chapter 15, and we look at the words of Christ in verse 18. But those things which proceed out of the mouth come from the heart. Those things that come from the mouth, they start somewhere else. That's just, that's the fruit. It's the fruit of what's in the root, and the root is in the heart. For God's grace to be communicated from us, our hearts need to be transformed by grace so that I have it so that I can give it to others. Not only must God's grace uh, reach the heart, um, but God's grace, as it reaches my heart, it has a transforming power and impact in my life. And that message of grace that changes my life is a message of life. God's grace yields a transforming message of life. Look with me in the book of Proverbs chapter 4. Proverbs chapter 4. We see it as a principle very clearly in the Old Testament. And Paul is going to draw upon that very idea. Interestingly enough, right here in Proverbs chapter 4, we're in the context of what's going on with your words, what's going on with what you're communicating. And the, the, the writer, the wisdom writer here, brings into this idea, hey, what's going on in your heart? And hey, you know what needs to be happening in your heart? Life. You can give words of death. You can give words of life as well. Proverbs chapter 4, verse 20, it says, My son, give attention to my words. Incline your ear to my sayings. Don't let them depart from your eyes. Keep them in the midst of your heart. Take the wisdom and get it at a, at a deep level. He says, For they are life to those who find it and health to all their flesh. Capture this. Keep your heart with all diligence. Keep it. Tend to it. Feed it. Protect it. Keep your heart with all diligence, for out of it springs the issues of life. Life flows from what's going on in here. Even under the law, this idea of what's happening at a belief level between God and man. Today, under God's grace, where we have the Spirit of God, we have the written Word of God, we have all power in Jesus Christ, and we have all of these things working together, we have unlimited power through Jesus Christ, able to be worked out in our heart and in our life. That is the source. And when we allow that to be unleashed in our lives, that will transform us. And it is a message of death unto life. It's a transformation from death, from life alienated apart from God, apart from the life of God, to his life. You could look with me in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 7. We won't turn there for time's sake this morning. But we see in time past where we were walking without God. 
and how when we see God's grace, it comes in and it changes us from death to life. And yes, there is the dispensational aspect of as Gentiles, we were separated and now we're, we're just part of it. God's extending it to us in spite of that or because of that. And that's beautiful and that's great. But then on an also an individual level, the transformation from death unto life, that is what God's grace does in our hearts. And that is transformative. When you have this life where it takes you from death to life, it does something in you. It changes you. And it excites you to such a level that you want for others what's been given to you, right? You just want for them. You want to see the same transformation, the same life, the same joy and victory, the same satisfaction and peace that you have in Jesus Christ that has satiated, that has satisfied the deepest longings of your heart. That's what you want for others. Putting this back into the context of our family, that's what you want for your spouse. That's what you want for your children. And because God is doing this, we are now ready. My needs are met. So I can start to turn outward. I don't have to just focus on me because Christ is giving me all that I need now. As Christ fills me, I can look across the bedroom and I can look to my wife and I can see. And God's doing the same thing in her life, but I can look at her and I can say, God, use me to come and reach my wife. And so I can bless and honor and serve her. And in my tiredness and in her tiredness, God's filling our cup. God's filling our heart and giving us his grace, producing his life in us so that we can look across the table and who do we see but our children that are right there. And we can go and we can pour into them and we can serve them and we can give when it might seem like we have nothing left to give because God's word, God's grace overflowing in our lives. Point number three, grace-filled hearts overflow God's life-giving grace to others. Here we'll look at this. God's plan is to reach the world through grace-filled relationships. Grace-filled relationships. I want us to look at Matthew chapter 22. Matthew chapter 22. And verse 36. Here again, the religious leaders have missed the boat. And their hearts are not turning toward the Lord. In fact, they're trying to get him to stumble so they can get him out of the way. And uh, verse 36, teacher, speaking to Christ, which is the greatest commandment in the law? And Christ speaks to the greatest needs of the heart. He says, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the first and great commandment. And the second is like unto it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments hang all the law and the prophets. 
It really boils down the Christian life during any span of time. The vertical, you and the Lord. The horizontal, you in relationship to everybody else. But here he gives them the context and he says, love your neighbor like yourself. We were joking this morning about uh, looking at the book of Ecclesiastes and vanity of vanities, all is vanity. That's what we say when you're looking in the mirror in the morning, right? I don't have to look in the morning to have that sort of attitude. I can look at myself and I'm wonderful and I can extol myself and I can, I naturally care for myself a lot. That's human nature. That's what we want. And it's that idea that to that same natural level that you want to care, you're, you're going to protect yourself. He's saying that's, that's what you take and God works in your life so that you meet others' needs to that same level. You serve them to the same level that you would serve yourself. And he says, serve your neighbors. And this is something that we miss so often. We look at that and we say, neighbors, well, who are our neighbors? It's those guys out there, right? It's the guys that live across the street. Are those our neighbors? They sure are. Biblically speaking, do you know what the word neighbor means? It simply means nearby, near. If you're living in a home with a spouse and children, guess who your neighbors are? Your spouse, your children, they are near. God's plan is to reach the world through grace-filled relationships. He said, love him, love your neighbor as yourself. We begin with our family. Because God is overflowing and working. And this is the step we miss. Because we get so excited. And we love what God's doing. And God has done a great work. I want everyone to know about it. What is it, Buddy the Elf? So I'm in love, I'm in love, and I don't care who knows. I want everyone to know it. That's true. And I want everyone to know how much Jesus Christ loves them to the point of death. I want them to know that. And so it is on me. I am an ambassador for Jesus Christ. And so I have a relationship to the world, and I go, and I evangelize, and I share. But no greater impact in this world, the greatest mark, the most opportunity to see Jesus Christ alive in my life are the countless hours spent investing into my wife and my children with that. Because as I pour into my neighbors and Jesus Christ does a work in their lives and as they grow and as they mature, they continue to allow God's grace to transform their heart and life. And what does God's grace do once it it transforms our lives? We want to overflow. And so I'm pouring into my kids. As they grow, their hearts overflow. And now I'm not just pouring into one person. I poured into my family. And now every single person in my family is overflowing into the people in their worlds. Do you see how just by me focusing on the most influential people in me, it has this exponential effect where I have a greater impact because I had the greatest impact possible on just a few. We skip that step 
often for good things. Well, I'll do things at the church, I'll serve, I'll do this. Countless pastors have forsaken their family, even though that's at the, high, the height of the priority list when you look at the qualifications for, for ministry for elder. It talks about ruling their house well. Parental uh, uh, ideas there. They have overlooked their closest neighbors in honor of doing good things with that. Might that never be said about us, where we recognize our closest neighbors indeed are the ones sleeping in the room right beside us or in the room next door. God's plan is to reach the world through grace-filled relationships. Finally, God's plan is to reach the world through grace-filled community. That's who we are. That's what this is here. And we see this at work. We see God working in individual lives, in individual families, uh, moms and dads pouring into kids. And as these families pour into another family and give encouragement and come alongside and pray with and suffer alongside and build up, that allows God to do a work in this family's life. And as their heart and needs are met and that transformation of God happens, it moves beyond. And this is stuff that doesn't happen in the world because this is stuff that can't happen apart from Jesus Christ. But we have Jesus Christ. We have the grace of God unleashed in our lives and it makes an impact upon our community. It makes an impact in our world. This is the role of our church. So we're talking about what is the target? And I ask the question, what does a godly family look like? And you wrote some words down on your paper this morning. I want you to revisit that. Do the words that you wrote on your paper, do they match the ideas that we brought out? Are they different? Do they align? Or what you wrote, is that just an expression of what we said? We've talked about a lot of ideas. I want you to walk away with three simple words from this. In fact, they come from the three main points that we talked about. Grace-filled homes result from grace-filled individuals. We, gotta do, uh, we can't have a godly home unless we have godly individuals. We've got to start the cart at the beginning. And then point number two, we said grace-filled Hearts, sorry, grace-filled individuals then have transformed hearts. And then finally, grace-filled hearts overflow God's life-giving grace to others. And so if you look at this, we have a, it's a hidden puzzle for you. Three characteristics for you. Individuals transformed overflow. What does a grace-filled home look like? A grace-filled home looks like individuals who are transformed by the very grace of God, by the power of Jesus Christ, rooted alone in the word of God, dependent upon his power, exalting Jesus Christ, transforms us. And as we keep focusing on God's work in our life, it overflows And the world can't help but be drawn to it and see that I want what's going on in their lives. 
I want to encourage us. I know our families. I know that these are our values, that this is what we're after. This is everything that we want. Paul talks about to the Galatians, he said, don't grow weary in well-doing. It gets tiring sometimes to keep on keeping on serving our families, doing the hard work of, of, of saying no to things that are going on out in the world or saying no to good things, uh, calendars full of activities, to saying no so that we can say yes to the best things, which is pouring into the lives of our children so that our children can pour into the lives of other children in the community around them, knowing that one day we will continue to see the Lord work through this church, through our community of families, and see his grace on display in a powerful, special way. This is what grace does, and this is what God wants from his grace in our lives. Individuals transformed overflow. Let's pray. Father, thank you for uh, just the work that you're doing in each family of our church, Lord. Lord, I do pray for the moms, the dads, the grandparents, the friends, just the aunts and uncles, Father, whatever the relationship all the individuals of our church might have. Father, uh, I pray for encouragement. I pray for a revival of heart, so to speak, so that we would be encouraged to be about the work that you've called us to, Lord. Father, I pray for the family that is struggling at the moment. Father, uh, where we might be questioning, where it's, it's hard to see your grace. It's, we're not seeing transformation right now. Father, I pray for them. Would we as a church rally around? Would we uh, encourage? Would we comfort? Would we weep with them at the same time? Father, we also recognize that families look different. While, yes, we've been talking about the impact of, of children, Father, if it's just a man or woman before you, Lord, Father, the same, it, it's beautiful how you've created the church to be a body of diversity like this where you transform our lives and you impact others just through that transformation and, and uh, us allowing you to work in our lives. Pray uh, Father, for those uh, without families, that you would use them mightily and powerfully and that they would see you working in their lives as well. Lord, we love you. We thank you. We give you praise in Jesus Christ's name. Amen.